The man that makes this statement that says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, he's really responding to a statement that Jesus had made in the previous verses about the resurrection of the just. And the Jewish people have always looked at heaven as this great big feast. And so when Jesus is speaking about the resurrection of the just, and Jesus is speaking about the coming heaven, this Jewish man says, blessed is everyone that's going to eat at that banquet. Jesus gives a parable in response to that statement that's really a pretty fierce parable. And I'm hopeful this morning that God helps me to deliver uh, this message with a sense of gratitude that I am part of the festival, that I'm part of the banquet. But what Jesus has to say is pretty pointed. Jesus basically says, you're, you who all think that you're going, most of you aren't. He doesn't deny that it's going to be a great feast, but when the guy's like, hey, I can't wait to get to heaven, Jesus is like, well, you're probably not going. And he gives them this parable about false security. And there's some lessons here. The parable is ultimately about some guys that say no to a feast. But what Jesus is pointing to is so much greater than some one-time feast at a king's house. Jesus is pointing to heaven itself. And he says that ultimately many are invited, but few are going to come in. And he gives them some reasons that people give for saying no to God. And this morning, I want us to look at what I will call four facts about God's invitation to sinners. Notice, first of all, that all are invited, but few will be saved. In our parable, the first people that are invited, the Manny that is referenced, are the Jewish people. It is ultimately who Jesus came to first. But Jesus is teaching the Jewish people here that they have rejected the invitation. And consequently, because they have rejected the invitation, God will send out the invitation to everyone else. The lame, the poor, the crippled, the blind. And then even after that, he sends the servant back into the highways and byways to simply compel anybody and everybody to come. And so here's the first thing we need to see this morning, is that God's invitation to come is to all of us. There is nobody to whom the invitation to turn to Jesus is not extended. Yet, few accept it. There are few who will be saved. Jesus tells us this various times in various ways. You may be familiar with the story of the, the broad way and the narrow way, the broad gate and the narrow gate. Jesus says broad or wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many are on that path. And then he says narrow is the path, narrow or small is the gate, 
that leads to eternal life, that leads to heaven, and few there be that find it. This is a heart-wrenching reality, but it is a reality we must recognize the Scriptures teach us. That while God stands with arms wide open and invites the entire world to come, that while Jesus gave His life so that the entire world could be saved, the entire world won't be saved. In fact, there are only few that truly turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Few respond. Jesus says, the master of the feast basically says, all right, everything is ready. You know, that's an important piece about this parable. Everything is ready for you to come to God. He's the one that's prepared the way. He's the one that's made it possible. There is absolutely nothing that you and I need to do on our end to prepare ourselves to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood has been shed. My sins have been dealt with. Jesus has been buried. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave by rising from the dead. He has paved the way for every single one of us to come to Him. The only thing we need to do is respond to that invitation and say yes to Jesus. But few do. Jesus begins to give us some of the excuses that people give for not coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see, these excuses are really lame. Billy Sunday defined excuses as the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Sort of looks like a reason on the outside, but when you look what's really on the inside, it's just a big fat lie. That's what excuses are. You'll find that the person who is good at excuses is usually not good at anything else. So the second thing I want us to note this morning is that there are no acceptable excuses for rejecting salvation. Consider the foolishness of the excuses that are given. The first guy says, I have bought a field and I must see it. I have bought a field and I must see it. Can we just examine the excuse a little bit together? Who buys a field they haven't already seen? Surely the guy had seen the field. Now let's just say he was stupid enough to buy a field he hadn't seen. Why does he have to go see it in the evening on this evening of all evenings? Why can't he wait till tomorrow? It's an empty excuse, and what we're going to see is that the excuses that Jesus uses in this parable are meant to communicate that to us, that any excuse that we use is empty and it just doesn't make sense. There is no excuse for saying no to God, regardless of how many fields and possessions and things you own. Now, I want to note that these, these excuses, we could, we could compartmentalize them and, and say, they, this excuse deals with this area of life, this excuse deals with this area of life, and the third with another. And what you're going to find is that they are all earthly excuses that have no heavenly merit. The first one, 
It's about possessions. Whether it's lands or houses or cars or things or wealth, our possessions cannot allow us to keep ourselves from God. Now, in the parable, Jesus is dealing very specifically with the invitation to the heavenly banquet. So no doubt in the parable, this is dealing with people who will reject salvation and not even make it to heaven. And the foolishness of the excuses that sinners give for accepting Christ's invitation to be saved. But if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to consider with me the truth that there's some application to us as well. That even after we've been saved, God invites us to be a part of His kingdom. God invites us to play a role in advancing His name. God invites us, and I would, I would even use a stronger term, and say God commands us to play a role in the body of Christ. That he has given us gifts that he expects us to use in his kingdom. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that the same principles apply to us. There are times that our possessions we will use as excuses for saying no to the things that God has called us to do. The second thing that Jesus points to, a man says he's bought ten oxen, that's five yoke, ten ten oxen, and that he also needs to go examine them. Um, One of the words that can be used there is test them. And more than likely what the man is saying is that he he bought 10 oxen and he needs to go see how well they work. Like he needs to give them a try. So again, I ask the question, who buys 10 oxen they haven't already seen pulled? They have no, like, who, who does this? And again, why does it have to happen on this night if he's already purchased them? These oxen represent something more than just possessions. They represent a man and his work. Oxen were creatures of work. They were creatures that were used to till the ground. They were creatures that were employed, if you will, by the farmer who owned them. And the man says, I know that I've had a great invitation, but I've got something far more important than an invitation to tend to my work. Now, I want to cautiously deal with this point because it is kind of a heavy point and there's great application to us and I don't want to give anybody any wiggle room to not be dealt with if the Holy Spirit is trying to deal with you. But I've never been the guy that tries to shame people for being gone for a vacation or maybe you have a career that truly requires you occasionally to miss Sundays for your job. We need police officers to work on Sundays, folks. 
Imagine if the entire world knew police officers just had Sundays off. That would become crime day. <laughs> Firefighters, they're on one day off too. We need these first responders responding to emergencies even on Sundays. And so please do not misunderstand the point I'm about to make, but if the shoe fits, wear it. A lot of times the excuses we make for giving God our second best because we have to work are really just excuses, which I will say again, are nothing more than a skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I've been doing what I do now for more than two decades. And it's interesting to me how true this parable still rings true 2,000 years after it was given. People that either give nothing to God at all and reject His invitation altogether, or Christians who really give God their second best because they are so much concerned about their own possessions and their own thing and their own work and their own pursuit of wealth that God really just gets stuffed in there somewhere and they give God second, third, or fourth best. And I want to ask this question, honest question. I want you to be willing to ask the question to yourself. Whatever excuses you give for your lack of commitment to the things of God, maybe the house of God, the purposes of God in your life, do you really feel confident that if you today were to meet God face to face and try to give those excuses to God, do you really think that they would wash? And what you're going to find is, if you're honest with yourself, the answer is no. But much like the people of the story, here's what I want you to see. The people in the story believed that eventually they would have the opportunity to change their mind and come on their terms. That's the reason most people think. They think, I'm going to say no to God now because I want to go after my earthly pursuits now and I've got to take care of this thing now in my life and then later... After I get my possessions in order, after I've got my career where I want my career to be, after I'm where I want my life to look and everything's in place, then I'm going to give God my best. Then I'm going to make God come first. Here's the problem, folks. 99% of the time, then never comes. And if the enemy has learned that in your life you're willing to take these excuses and use them for giving God your second best, trust me, he will always provide another excuse for you. Notice the third thing that Jesus points to. The guy just says, I'm married. Like, this is, this is the weakest of all the reasons. The other people sort of give an explanation. I've bought a field and I have to see it. I've bought 10 oxen and I need to test them. This guy's just like, I've got a wife and I can't. Now, I want you to note that the greatest teacher ever known to mankind in trying to help us understand the foolishness of saying no to God, make sure that he uses this third analogy. No explanation other than, I got a family. And somehow that's supposed to give me 
a reason for not giving God my best. These things are kind of heavy to consider. The excuses that we often make for not giving God our best, and we want to say, because I'm married. You know, I think there's, I think Jesus left this wide open for several reasons. Maybe so that we could speculate. Maybe so that nobody could say, well, it doesn't apply to me. You know, I do think it's possible that possibly this particular spouse, their partner was not a Christian. And I think that is something that sometimes keeps people from really surrendering to the Lord. They're afraid, like, well, what's my husband or my wife going to do? If that is you, all I can do is plead with you, please come to Jesus. You have to trust God with your life and your marriage. And there is not a decision that you will ever make, not even marriage, that is more important than the decision to truly turn your life to Jesus Christ. Because that is an eternal decision. And while there are no guarantees, who's to say that a person in this position might not play the very role of eventually leading their spouse to come to know Jesus too. We heard it this morning right here at the Well Worship Center, a testimony of a woman who gave her heart to the Lord who was saved, and soon thereafter her husband followed. Now there's no guarantee of that, but here's what I can tell you. It doesn't matter. You need to be saved. But I think it's also possible that that's not the only application here, folks. I have seen it over and over again. People who make excuses for giving God their second best, and they call it family time. I want to say it again. I have never been the type of guy, and I'm not going to become the type of guy, who tries to shame people because they're spending time with their family or because they have a job that forces them to occasionally work on Sundays. I am not that guy, but we must be honest and ask ourselves the truth. What does our family need more than God? And if my life is built in such a way that the only family time I have almost always conflicts with my time to be in the house of God and to worship and to bring my family to worship with me, I need to change my schedule. And you'll find here we at times have the conflict of work. Like, well, I might not be working Sundays, but I am working six days a week and I'm putting in 55 to 60 hours, so the only time I have open to take care of me and have family time is unfortunately what would be God time. Well, then you need to change your work. At some point or another, God has to come first. Now, I can say this, period, because it's biblical. I can say this, period, because it's right. But I'm speaking from experience. I know what it's like to be busy. I, had, I wasn't always a preacher. Most of you have never known me in any capacity other than the lead pastor of the Well Worship Center. I wasn't always a lead pastor. I used to build houses. I used to have a company. And it was always busy. 
I know what it was like to have my time constantly demanded of me. But I stand here before you and before God, and I can tell you, we had a priority in my life. We were at church every single time church was happening. And in the church that I went to, that was Wednesday morning, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. When we had VBS weeks, Joplin Emerson was there working at VBS because I believed I had a role to play in the kingdom of God that was far more important than any number of houses that I built. I believed God had to come first because God is first and he's above all. Jesus points to this reality that so many, they come up with excuses for why they're not giving God their best sinners come up with excuses for why they don't truly accept the invitation to come. And at the end of the day, these excuses, they're just stupid. They're nonsense. Third, we see that there's a limit to God's patience. In Luke 14, 24, This is the the final thing Jesus says about it. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Eventually, the invitation is rescinded. Do not miss this point. The point of the parable isn't just that people come up with excuses for saying no to God, but that at some point in time, God says enough is enough. I don't know when the last time I'll be able to preach is. But you don't know when the last time will be in your life that God extends an invitation to you to repent and turn to Him. You don't know. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you truly have repented and you truly are saved... You don't know. If you're saying no to God in other areas of your life, if you're saying no to God and truly being consecrated to Him and being truly involved in the body of Christ like He's called you to be, you don't know when the last time God's invitation to you is going to come. Eventually, Jesus doesn't tell us when. There's no way to measure it. There's no way to know. But eventually, the invitation is rescinded. And so for me, the message is simple. I don't want to figure out when that line is. That it's so long as today is today, we want to say yes to God today. There is a limit to God's patience. Many people think they're going to wait to accept the invitation on their terms. Like, I'm going to say no to God right now because I'm going to get this done in my life or this done in my life. I, I, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I'm on my deathbed. And the doctor has told me with a great degree of certainty, you have 24 hours left to live. Then I'm going to call the preacher. The preacher is going to come up to my hospital room. and He's going to lead me to the Lord. And then right before I die, I'm going to be saved. That is the stupidest idea that you could ever live by. Number one, if you're stupid enough to take that bait, you'll probably be blind the rest of your life. And number two, that's not how most people die, folks. There is no guarantee that's going to happen. 
I'm going to tell you something. I have, I have prayed with people in the last hours of their life. I believe that God can save the thief on the cross. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. What I'm saying is that is a terrible way to live your life intentionally, to say no to God over and over and over and over and over again and think that later on your terms when you want, then you'll do it. If you know in the depth of your heart that the God of heaven and earth is inviting you to come to him, you need to respond right then and right there. There are no excuses that make sense at all for saying no to God when he's moving your heart to come to him. Finally, the fourth fact I want us to see this morning is that there is a heaven yet to be filled. Jesus said in Luke 14, 23, And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come, that my house may be filled. Now this is the great news. That while on one hand, there does come a time when God says, my patience has run out and the invitation ceases. On the other hand, God says, I want my house to be full. And go and invite everybody. Go to the highways. Go to the hedges. I thank God for that. I thank God that he said, go and get the lame and get the crippled and get the blind and get the maimed. Because that's who I was. I was truly like one of the last people that would have ever expected, in keeping with our story, to be invited to a king's banquet. I wasn't the type of person you invite to that type of thing. But I remember where I was, broken, blinded by my own sin, hopelessly trapped. When God came to me and extended that invitation, Joplin, come to me. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it is the absolute greatest decision I've ever made in my life. The saying yes to God absolutely changed my life forever. God gave me His Spirit. God gave me a new nature. God transformed me, gave me a new heart and new desires. It's been 22 years now. What I want us to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is that God still stands with the invitation. Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Jesus stood on the great day of the feast and said, any of you who are thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. God desires that his house be filled. That offer is to all of us and the offer stands today. Note that the unworthy are without excuse as well. We can't say, well, I'm not properly dressed I need to clean up first. The master's already made the invitation. And if he's the one that said come, we're without excuse. What would be your excuse this morning in saying no to the Lord? What is it that's keeping you from him? To those of us who are servants of the king, I want you to note that we have a duty to compel people to come in. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would come. I want you to note that in this parable, the king has a goal to fill his house, but who does he send to do it? His servant. He sends his servant first out to the blame, the blame, the blind, the lame, the poor. 
And the servant comes back, says, I've done what you told me to do, but there's still room. And he sends his servant again into the highways and the byways. Those of us who are servants of God have a responsibility to be going into all the world and compelling people to come to Jesus. I pray the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom at the Well Worship Center how to go and make disciples. You know, one method, just one method is certainly, I'm not knocking it because I think it's an important method. Inviting people to church. That's an important method. And so I encourage you to be thinking like, when's the last time you invited a sinner to church? When is the last time that you tried to compel somebody to come so they could hear the gospel? That's one method. But when we really examine the parable, we see servants going out and trying to compel people right where they are. It wasn't just an invitation to come and eventually hear why they should come to the banquet. It was, I'm going to go and I'm going to explain to you right there where you are on the street why you need to come to Jesus. And this is our responsibility to be going into the highways and the byways and compelling people to come to Jesus. In what ways can we be doing a better job of that? I think sometimes we can become so self-focused on what can I get from God. And, 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 and there are a lot of good things that we do in church that we need to be doing. They're not bad things. But I want to be clear, we can become so focused on ourselves and so focused on learning this thing and teaching people this and this thing and that thing and this event and that event that before we know it, we're just doing a bunch of stuff for us so that we can have a good, fun Christian experience and we are doing very, very, very little going into the highways and byways and compelling people to come. That I can preach about that and the idea of even going, it seems so foreign to so many people. People that have been Christians for years that have never went and tried to compel anybody to come to Jesus. And I pray we see this is the job of the servants, brothers and sisters. This week when I was studying this passage, my heart was challenged. If you know anything about us here at the well, we do a lot of missions. I thank God for it. But my heart was challenged. It's one thing to go feed kids ice cream. It's an entirely different thing to compel people to come to Jesus Christ. And it's easy. It's easy to do the easy thing. Clothe people. Feed people. Make people feel good. Hug people. Encourage people. At some point, though, we've got to have the hard conversation about compelling people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and turning from their sins and placing their faith in Him. And I just, I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that we need God to help us keep this the focus. There's a sense of urgency in Jesus' parable here that eventually the invitation's rescinded. 
eventually time is out. Eventually God says, nope, the invitation to you is no more. You know, that's going to happen to the entire world as a whole one day. But even if that day is a ways down the road, I cannot help but believe there are people under the sound of my voice. This very well might be the last invitation you ever get. And there should be a sense of urgency about responding to God. There are people in your workplaces, people in your neighborhoods, people in your families who may be very close to the last invitation that they are ever going to get. And there should be a sense of urgency amongst believers to be reaching the lost, to be winning the lost, to be taking the gospel, telling people about Jesus.